Uh, our final guest tonight brings together actually lots of the, 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 the themes um, that we've talked about and touched on and not in any effortful way, which is always attractive because nobody likes effort. Um, <laughs> this is a wee quote from, from the book, um, which is called A Year of Marvelous Ways. This is a proof, it's a fantastic <laughs> quote. Um, the quote is, ever since she had entered her 90th year, Marvellous Ways spent a good part of her day waiting. And not for death, as you might assume, given her age. She's in her 90s. She wasn't sure what she was waiting for. It was a sense, that's all. Something had come to her on the tail feather of a dream. Here to tell us what that something is, is author of the worldwide bestseller, When God Was a Rabbit, please welcome Sarah Winman. <laughs> Right, A Year of Marvellous Ways, it's set in 1947, um, a little bit in London, majority in a creek in Cornwall. And it's, uh, it is a love story between an old woman and a young man. And the old woman is coming to the end of her life and she understands the preciousness of life. And the young man, Francis Drake, he has just returned from war and he's broken by war and he seems there's no point in carrying on with life. He only sees the futility of life. And so when he washes up in Marvelous's Creek, she realizes that there is one thing that she has to do before she dies, and that is to heal this young man. And the way she does this is through storytelling and telling him the story of her parents' life and the story of her life. And where I'm going to read from here is when they have got to Cornwall and... Old Marvellous, at this point, is telling young Drake about love. Who's Jack? asked Drake. What's that? The other night, I heard you talking to Jack. Was he your sweetheart? Yes, he was my love, my great love. Was he your first love? Oh, no, 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 he was my third love, my last. My first love was a lighthouse keeper. Unexpected, that was. <laughs> then came Jimmy. That one was expected. Why expected? I saw him coming. <laughs> what, in a dream? No, in a glass. In a glass? Are you repeating things just to annoy me again? <laughs> no, no, sorry. And then came Jack. So, was he expected or unexpected? Good question. He was neither. He was my always. I have had three loves, Drake. At the time, I thought it was enough, but looking back, I think there might have been room for more. One was my beginning, one was my middle, and one became my end. So it all started with a lighthouse keeper, said Drake. Yes, I suppose it did. All love starts with the flicker of a flame. I was in a tap room in Foy by the water. My eyes were set on the pages of my book, but even though my eyes were occupied, my ears were not, and I heard a fisherman talking about an old sea captain he once served under, a man he dearly loved, a man who now kept light on the Eddiston rocks. And the fisherman said the lighthouse keeper was close to death and needed help, and even though I was young, I found the image distinctly profound. I followed the fisherman out onto the quay and introduced myself. 
The fisherman explained that he was looking for someone to witness the ending of the lighthouse keeper's life. The old sea captain, he said, wanted to die peacefully in his tower and be buried at sea so no doctors were to be called. However, his two children who kept light with him were fearful to dispose of his body in case they were later accused of murdering him. So, I said I'd be the witness and help his passing. And days later, we were in his boat, waiting for the weather to turn. April arrived, and the first morning of that month brought us a steady northwesterly breeze, which was the most favorable wind for a landing. And with sails full and hope billowing, we set our course for the famous tower in the sea. I sat at the bow and focused my telescope on the horizon, that incandescent line that tugged at me as strongly as the moon tugged the earth. I was 17 years old when I spied my first lap, standing at the base of the Ediston light with a fishing rod in hand and his cap pulled low and us still a mere speck in his peripheral sight. With an hour's journey left to go, the sea became as smooth as glass and the men rowed the remaining miles with seals at our side and gulls at our heads. And what was once a fissure on the horizon soon became the lighthouse itself. I never took my telescope away from that young man fishing on the rocks. Closer he came, closer, until the lens became a face and the face looked up and the man became a girl. Hello, she shouted. You've caught a fish, I said. I've caught three. We anchored the boat fore and aft and then I jumped and she caught me. The lighthouse keeper was dazed from death. He was in between worlds, sleeping mostly, but then he would wake suddenly, staring as if he was looking back to his world from a very distant shore. The son never said a word. He stayed next to his father like a loyal dog, slept next to him too. Three little bunks in a simple round room. One small one, one medium and a large one. I chose to sleep with the mice on the kitchen floor below. As dusk approached, the weather turned rapidly and the winds picked up and we had just enough time to bolt the door when the first wave hit us from the southeast. The lighthouse shuddered and rocked like a tree and a wall of water hit the window and obliterated any daylight that still remained. The daughter took my hand and led me up the stairs to the lantern gallery. It was a small room with iron crossbars at the window. We cleaned the windows and lit the oil lamps as the waves pounded and the lighthouse shook. And we were so high up and the night stretched out before me desolately. Every minute felt like an hour as the channel swallowed the tower and the wind shrieked in joy at my terror. And that night, I never left the light, and she never left me. It was so hot up there, and it stank of oil, and we unbuttoned and sawdust and grime stuck to our clothes. 
and we listened to the lamps turn and the boom of waves and the squeal of the wind. And she halted my gasps of fear with a kiss and I never stopped her. It was my first kiss and it lasted till dawn. The sun paced round and round the room and the lighthouse keeper continued to fade. I gave him water that rested on his lips and placed my hands across his heart. And under my palm I felt the last rhythms of life play out. The last bar of a song brought to its end by the half-time beat of a solitary drum. And with his final breath the lighthouse keeper said, He is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We buried him at sea as was his wish, and in return the sea gave two weeks of calm for the sacrifice. The gales abated and the sea lowered, and the birds were busy overhead, cawing and diving into the fertile depths, and that sun flickered brightly across the crests of waves like young promises of love. The grimy lantern gallery became our bed, and as the wind shrieked, so did I. In the depths of night, I would stand outside on the balcony with sawdust stuck to my hair. I held tight to the rail and watched the sweep of light carve through that infinite blackness, seeking something greater at the horizon edge. And sometimes my grating birds, stunned and disoriented by the glare of beams, would smash into the glass and fall dead on the balcony floor. My girl would take the birds down to her brother to give him something to love. Oh, we were the centre of that liquid universe. For we were the night sun and we said to ships, do not come too close, we have rocks at our feet and the crash of waves sent white spray flying, and I'm scared and exhilarated and a little bit in love too. And I grip the handrail and inch slowly around the balcony, searching for that small channel of calm on the opposite side to the wind. And she came out and did the same, in the opposite direction. And we met at the back, and there was no room to stand side by side. And so we stood face to face, until it became face on face, until the only breeze there was was warm and came from her mouth and smelt of sweet china tea. Two days before I was due to leave, the sky was cloudless and as blue as I had ever seen it. The sun was so warm, my arms were out, my trousers rolled high. And the boy hadn't moved from his bunk. He slept with grief, surrounded by dead birds. She left food and water by his bed, then took my hand and led me up to the gallery. I watched her smell the air. She was like an old-time fisherman scanning the sea for the dance of fish, feeling for the mood of the currents. The sea was her mistress, not I, and she would never leave her mistress. That's why I never asked her to. Everything has its time. Ours was 14 days of nights and tides. The morning the boat came to pick me up. She gave me a coin. It's always with me. 
I have it here somewhere in my pocket. Wait a moment. Here. And she handed the coin to Drake. An old penny, he said. Yes. Why a penny? But she didn't answer him straight away. She said, when I got in that boat, Drake, I never looked back. I couldn't. I was 17 and I loved her. And I'd had my first taste of sex and it was wonderful. And even now I still shudder. She was wonderful. Oh, why have you just turned away from me? No, I didn't. Oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes, you did. Does this embarrass you, an old woman talking about sex? Of course not, he lied. I was young once. Hard to believe, isn't it? For most of my life I felt young. But of course I haven't been. I took being young for granted. And that is a statement that can only be made when one is old. I know it may not look it, but this tired old body has loved passionately. It has done things that would obviously make you blush. Drake blushed. <laughs> Why a penny? He asked after a while. I'm getting there, said Marvellous. Don't hurry me, especially not now. She said, waves fell over the stern and with full sails we surfed those waves and made good speed back towards Foy. But then I could bear it no more. My heart ached and pulled my sight back to the rock and the tower now fading into the horizon. But there was a flickering light coming from that tower, a glint like sunlight on a mirror. And I realized it was her light to me. And I knew she would always give me light and always get me home. I felt cold then, yet the coin burned hot in my pocket. I brought it out and warmed my hands and looked at the coin and saw the picture of Britannia ruling the waves. And I thought, oh, that's her really, a little bit her. And then I noticed it positioned behind Britannia's shoulder, the lighthouse, Smeaton's lighthouse. And everything we had was in that lighthouse. And this coin was the key to that particular door of time. I can no longer remember her name and I can no longer see her face. Such is my mind now. Often I am left waiting at the entrance whilst ghosts of my life are ushered to the exit. Many times I never had the chance to say goodbye, but then again my father would have said, sometimes you never do. C'est la vie, say the French. But what I do remember is the feeling of her face. And it was a good feeling. And from that, I know it was a good face. We never saw each other again. Never, said Drake. No, never. I never knew what happened to her, but I often wondered, of course, whenever I saw a light flashing in the distance. But it wasn't until the night of the still-talked-about storm many years later, when the new Douglas lighthouse sat upon the reef instead, that I really got to know. 
Got to know what? asked Drake. That she was still alive. <laughs> Actually crying. <laughs> um, I know, you know, oh God, right. Um, it's such an intense book in moments in moments like that. And mm. you know, you 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 deliver them um, throughout the book and you don't and I don't always see them coming. You know, were, I, I I was reading it and you know they were at home in the creek and they were t they were talking and she'd go off into a story and this story would take me somewhere completely, you know, that I that I couldn't have foreseen and then, you know, I end up crying like I like I do now. And I cried for about the last twenty pages. And I have to try really hard not to tell you what happens um, at the end. Um, because this really is a book um um, uh, unlike uh, unlike any other, but th this particular book um, delivers a real sucker punch, not just on the last page, not just in the last paragraph, but pretty much in the last line. Um, and you know, and I thought, am I a cretin? Should I have seen that? No, no, it's fine. And I re and I reread it, and I didn't. Uh. But um, but um, anyway, let's talk about marvelous ways. This okay. woman, this incredible woman, whose okay. voice you have found yes. on the page and in yourself. And where did she come from? Um, like everything, she's an amalgam of people that I know. Um, I always say that I grew up with four grandparents, and so I think you, you seek out older friends. I think it's a very natural place to be. You understand the value and the worth and the joy of older friendships, and I've had many, and, and I think she's an amalgam of that. Of um, women and men? Or women and women. men, yeah, absolutely. That's, I think, clear. Um, Physically, uh, she's very much um, an older friend that I have at the moment, who's uh, 95 next week, who she's a small lady and she has big glasses and she has a red Mac, not a yellow Mac. And, but there is something about this woman who uh, causes a receptiveness and an openness in everybody that she meets. And so there, you can be walking in the street with her. She knows so many people. Um, they stop and they say hello. And that was extremely important that I got the physicality of Marvellous down very early on and to sort of have that feel and try and bring about an enchantment so that when she does start telling these stories, they're going to be received openly rather than someone thinking she was a bit of fruitcake. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard trick to pull off because it is a book that is not without whimsy. I mean, when I, start, yeah. when I started it, I was kind of going, really? Oh, uh, you know, and it's for 10 or 20 pages in, actually, when you start to believe, because the thing that Marvellous is, is that she is honest. She is, she's not earnest. She's not mm. twee. She is herself. Mm. And, you know, she's, she is the age that she is, but she also swears and she's had a sex life. And she's, you know, she kind of reminded me of Diana, actually, in some ways, Diana at her. She, she was yeah. very, she's very much a kind of a woman of the world. But, 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 but she's, you know, telling you a story and you can't, you go with it. You have, you have to go with it. But it's the story that she has convinced herself. And that's part of this, mm. this book is there are enough clues to know that there might be another story underneath. And it is, it is the whole notion of we are part fact, part fiction ourselves. You know, I change endings to my stories already. So I'm already in 
quite you mean a, your own personal stories? My own personal stories. If I want to tell a story and um, I want a little bit more of a triumphant end and, mm. and people don't know me, I will give it a triumphant end. <laughs> and your wife is here. She's like, yeah, she does. No, she knows that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so this is, she has created, she has created um, a triumphant life for herself. And, um, and I leave it as to whether, whether it is the truth of her life Mm. or whether you want to go with the rumblings of the possibility of, of what that life could have been. Well, I mean, there's certainly a lot of tragedy in this novel, as it also was with your first. There's a lot of, you know, well, grimness. You know, there's, yeah, there's, the, absolutely. There's, there's, there's the war and terrible things happen and people behave in the blackest, most terrible ways possible. And, and yet somehow overall it's, it's, um, it's, it's optimistic. Actually, let's talk about the war because while we're sitting here, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. it's just, I'm I know. reminded of that scene in the book where the blitz, the blitz is happening. Oh, Seagull, really good timing. Um, you know, and, and um, we arranged that. Um, and you know, and that, that, that moment in the book is, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's terrifying. I was right there, you know, you know, kind of in the, in the city and also in those wars. What research did you do? For that was that somebody you knew that's the thing that i thought it was somebody you knew that you'd interviewed that because it Which, didn't seem like book learning the moments where you're talking about the, the being on the front and also of london after the war well no i did do a lot of research i was very I, I came to it i was very very interested in a particular shelter that is in um spitalfields and it's and it's the basement of the london wool and fruit exchange and it was one of the the deep shelters um i came to that story because I think what, because of the films of the time and the propaganda of the time, I still think we hold on to the notion that the Second World War was quite a gentleman's war. And that, you know, yay, 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 the government came along and they said, here, here's some underground that you can go because we love the working classes and you can all go down here and we'll all be safe. And that didn't happen. I mean, it was quite criminal the way um, the government actually behaved too that part over there, the East End and the working classes and that, they provided no deep shelters. And so I, um, there's a brilliant book called, uh, it's not part of Carry On franchise, although it's called Carry On London by a man called Richie Calder. And he was taken around uh, a lot of these deep shelters by a guy called Mickey Davis. Now, Mickey Davis was also known as Mi Mickey the Midget. He this was is sounding so made up right now. I know, I, I know. Go on. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> and he three foot six, and he took this guy around. So the 76 days of continuous bombing that London had between uh, September 1940 and May 1941, he took this journalist around to these deep shelters and to, and he opened up these deep shelters and he opened, he helped people, you know, garner a revolution to get in the underground because it was woefully inadequate. And so, you know, that led me on and that well, was the main crux, I think. But I mean, let's talk about those those spaces because actually, there's a part of it that I I had I hadn't realised at all. I mean, I sort of knew from a book that that, that Jill Dawson had done about about the neglect, you know, of, of of the of the East End. But I didn't know about what exactly went on in these deep shelters, wherever they were. And there's I know. a character called Missy, Missy. in the book um, who goes into these deep underground shelters and is kind of more scarred by what she feels happened there or what she did there um, than, than what was happening above ground. Well, she feels scarred because they survived. Mm. This was the point. Um, I know what you're talking about. You're talking yeah. about, we're talking about this, this deep shelter. So, um, Mickey commissioned it. There was another one in Stepney uh, called the Tilbury and that had 15,000 people 
a night down in the basement. So you were talking a small town. Um, originally, if we go back to the, the, the uh, Wool and Fruit Exchange, um, the first night they were expecting 5,000 people. They had 10,000 people there. There was no lighting, there was no sanitation, so it was, you know, toilets were buckets and uh, stale fried food were being sold there. There was lice and everything you could possibly imagine and the stench of fear, which you could... But the main thing was, these people were safe. This was the first time they were mm. safe. Mm. But what happens is that in dark spaces with lots of people, um, suddenly we've got prostitution uh, areas of prostitution in the shelters. There's areas of gambling, there's areas of illegal drinking, and there's also areas of anonymous sex. Because what do you do when it's blackout and you might die tomorrow? Basically, you have sex. And it went on. And so you and would have... this is a phenomenon that was identified you know, after 9-11 and also during the blitz. Absolutely. The idea of terror sex. That's, no, it was Not true. terrible sex. <laughs> terror sex. Yeah. Very different. Because I remember about a, uh, a month after 9-11, there was a spike in STDs. Yeah. So that's exactly what had happened. Yeah. It's, it's, Everybody it's went out and started shagging. That's what it is. Thanatos. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, yes, that's what went on. And, and it was so known about that many soldiers would, would um, come back on leave. And they wouldn't go and see their families. They would just go straight to these shelters. It's kind of amazing that that's... Well, it's not amazing in a way, but that it's escaped our narrative. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting about the book is, is that you, you make us look again this cosy received narrative of what was happening in London yeah. at, at that time and, and, to, and to those people. And Drake gets back from the war and, and he, here's a man who, for all sorts of reasons, doesn't fit in. Let's talk about that. I mean, in, in, in some ways, it's like Catherine's story, not quite sure about are his origins what he thinks they were. Well, his, his journey is... is I mean, he's, he's a fractured man from, from war, but, but it goes back earlier than that. So it's about mm. identity with him. You know, his name is Francis Drake, and his mother named him after a sailor, and he's never gone far, and he hates water. So he's already burdened. <laughs> um, and, and he is the outsider. I mean, I write outsiders. That's why I've stuck somebody in a forgotten creek. Yeah. I rather like the outsider narrative. Um, and... So he, you know, he comes back to a London, and it's a London that he doesn't recognise. He's been away for seven years, and there's really nothing for him here. But he, he has something to do. He has a journey. So the London well, is the stop-off point. He, he has a mission. He has a mission, which is to deliver a letter. Yeah. Which was given to him by a dying man. Yes, in France. Um, so yes, he he ends up in Cornwall, and he, he his his journey of healing, so to speak, is to actually end up in the creek um, with this old woman who is hopefully going to turn his life around and provide him with a future. And, and what he will do is, is give her an ending. But not necessarily the ending that you think. No. Um, so um, so let, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about the creek, because um, I, I was sort of kind of visualising this and thinking of when, because we met in Cornwall, yeah. and, um, and I was thinking about the place where we were. Is, is one of those sort of liminal, is it the sea, is it the land? And also, you know, that church that was swallowed by the sand. Is yeah. it a place that just is constantly changing? Um, and here, here's Marvellous in this place, which is her home. And she's kind of witchy. And it's a she, bit of yes. a witchy dell. She, she would be what would probably commonly be known as a wise woman. But I didn't want the standard wise woman because they are too witchy. I just mm. wanted this lovely, strange, forgotten woman who, who has astonishing healing powers, mainly through the old people who she grew up with. So mm. she does know about herbs and she does know about uh, the laying out and dying. She does know about birthing and things like that. So 
you know, she's not just, you know, everyone is trying to get a charm from her in this book. Yeah. And, and she keeps saying, it's not what I do. You know, this is not who I am. I'm, you know, I, I actually have a function and I'm, and I'm quite and skilled she, at that. And she is also a person. I mean, she yes. doesn't just do what she's expected to. You know, it was in this book that I, I, I learned um, the, 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 the book ending of the expressions, the, the, the laying out and the laying in, yeah. the lying in of a pregnant woman and the laying out of a body. And yes. the, the book is just full of those kind of beginnings and, and, and endings. It's very, um, it's very spiritual um, in that way. Now, one of the things that I was anxious about about it was mm -hmm. that it might err into magical realism because yep. I have issues with it. And, uh, and in fact, what, what it made me think about anew was it, it's, not, it's not magical in the sense that it's abracadabra and there's a hat and things happen that couldn't happen. It's that the natural world and our world, you know, the way we behave, is, it happens in unexpected ways. Mm. And these coincidences kind of augur other things. So Marvelous is waiting. She doesn't know what she's waiting for. And then all these, you know, starfish wash up on the beach, which is a perfectly rational, natural phenomenon. It happens. Yep. We've all watched the blue planet. Um, <laughs> and, and yet, you know, you turn it into this, you know, this kind of storytelling moment and I just, I just think but it's, it's her storytelling yeah. you know that's that's the point that she has created a world that she can live with she didn't know her mother she well she says her well, mother is a mermaid yes there you go her issues. mother is a mermaid there are issues yeah <laughs> bear with bear with <laughs> um she her father died when she was 14 um she was probably left impoverished, if I'm telling you a story of yeah. how somebody would have been in, in were we talking, late 19th century. And what we have, we have natural phenomenon that she has imbued with meaning, with meaning and with magic and, you know, saying, this is my life and, and I've done well. And she's waited, she's waited 25 years for the love of her life because it's worth it and waiting for that period of time she got nine months but it was worth it mm. but if you then want to take away her narrative and you think 25 years for nine months are you mad and so this is the point this is the push and pull this is the tidal flow of this mm. story that there are enough chinks for you to really really work out possibly what what one another truth of this story might did be. Did you know when you were writing it what, what the truth was that you were working towards or did it change as you were doing it depending oh, on how you felt? It changed every day. Yeah. It was, um, yeah, if you look at the centrality of the story, yeah. it, was, it was just all over the place actually. Um, and I, I, to prepare for this, I went back over notebooks. I got about 11 notebooks just to see what it was like. I didn't know what you were going to ask. And so they go back to, I don't know, 2010 and so if I think it was towards the end of 2012 that I wrote, this is a, is a love story between an old woman and a young man. Mm. And these little moments came, you know, very f far between each other. You know, it was a hard slog, actually. Mm. I, um, I started off really... Uh, being very daft and thinking if I'm going to write something in 1947 I need to read Graham Greene and I need to read Elizabeth mm. Bowen and then I have five uh, folders of of parts of of this story that is that is um, written with really perfect sentences that I never do you know I never yeah. write like that and I felt like I just couldn't get into the joy of it 
And so it took a while. It took a while, and it was a very, very slow process too. I wonder if there's something about you as an actor and you as a writer. and Because, you know, when you're reading Marvelous, you're kind of inhabiting her, you're performing her. Mm. And it feels to me when I'm reading it like you're performing her on the page and it does also feel like it's a book that would be an excellent film. Mm. Um, and I, I, I wonder, you know, how much of your kind of training as an actor went into improvising on the page, Marvelous. I think it does. I mean, that's where I've come from. And, you know, I'm still, I still feel that I'm... An actor. I'm an actor who writes, even though I probably won't really act that much anymore. But that was, you know, that that was, you know, acting was the thing that took me out of the 1970s suburbs and, and gave me a life of storytelling. Mm. And so, the things that but are telling important. Telling other people's stories. I mean, here you get to tell a story that's. Exactly. Exactly. You you know you, thank goodness you have a little bit more control over it, which mm. I don't know one actor who does. But so you you get to play be everything. You get to be the actors and the directors and the producers a little bit, <laughs> and the costume design. Um, and I've completely lost my train of thought. Ah, no. So the important things. There was one that was extremely important was that in theatre, when you go to the theatre and you buy a ticket, that's when you enter into the contract. And the contract is the willing suspension of disbelief. Mm. And that was very, very important for me because it was like, no one's going to believe this. Mm. It's unbelievable, whatever. And I thought, if I say it's going to happen, it's going to happen. You know, do not get cowed by this fear or, you know, it's, it's it, the truisms of it. If I make it muscular enough, this is what has to be. That's what I expect from a book of fiction. I totally suspend my... Uh, willing suspension of, of, of uh, disbelief in that way. You do it in a very conscious way in this book. You actually say, "I'm telling you a story. Here's a story. I'm going, you know." And you, and you might struggle with some of these things, but you know. And I think that's a very clever way of of dealing with it. You know, but get, it is. You, it. it is, and it's the. I mean, it is theatrical. Mm. It is a theatrical book because she's theatrical, mm. and um, uh, yeah, and and the exploration. I suppose the other thing that that is always drummed into you as an actor, and it's the most important thing, is that the only emotional truth you have is your own and that is that is every time every time you do a play that the the secret is in the text and you have to mine that character mm. and you need to bring about some kind of authenticity of emotion not sentimentality or anything but something very very pure and and then the characterization so those three things i think are very pertinent to life before and what's your the emotional truth of yours that that drives the narrative mine mm. That's a very good question. I know. <laughs> My, I wanted to write a book about death and grief. Mm. The, 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 the event that separated Rabbit and this book was the death of my father. Mm. And I wanted to write a book that encompassed the moment, the people who were left behind, and the grieving. And but also not to forget that there was this astonishing life that happened beforehand. And that was extremely important. And that was very important for me to get right. Um, and I did get it right for myself, whether I have for other people, but, but it, that was probably the driving force. And in the same way, the quote that I have at the beginning with the T.S. Eliot Four Quartets, mm. we die with the dying, see they depart, and we go with them. And I think that's a, it's quite a beautiful line, but every time somebody who you know dies, they do take a part of you because what they take is your connection and they take your history. And you do have to fight hard through those years or those months following to 
to maintain that and maintain the joy of that connection. And of course, one of the ways you can do it is by writing a novel. <laughs> yeah, you can do that. memorialising them. <laughs> Was it, it must have been really pressurising for you, right? Sitting down to write, facing the blank page, having had this huge bestseller. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, it took its time. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have a deadline. I was very lucky and privileged. Did you have a two-book deal? No, I didn't. All right, so you, ooh, bad move, publisher. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, they, 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 um, I don't, I didn't have to deliver on time. Right. On, on, at a perfect time, so I was uh -huh. extremely privileged. But you and know yeah. what, it, the, it's, it's, if, you know, everyone who's writing or everyone who, who's in this room, who's in the creative arts, you know that it's you are your worst enemy. Mm. And what happened, and, and I suppose the thing that was most destructive in the, the timeline and why it took so long, was you write a book when you're on the outside and then you write a book on the inside. Mm. And they're very, very different um, environments. And what writing a book at this stage on the inside meant was it became moments of recognising self-consciousness mm. and the commentary over the writing, which I'd never had before. And so probably of a year of three and a half years of writing, a, a year of that was wasted. Well, not wasted, but trying to plough that field and get it back to the field of, of kind of, you know, fertile thought. Did you, did you have drafts that you were giving them or did you kind of get to, you know, no. get to an end point for yourself and then, then give it? I mean, that's no. a huge, I mean, joking aside, hugely supportive publisher that actually gives you no, the they space have been. to do that. They totally gave you know, space. Which and is I'm incredibly important because I think the book wouldn't have been the same book had you come under pressure at earlier points no, in the I think that. to do certain things. And I feel, you know, I do feel, I feel very, very lucky. I feel very privileged that, you know, I have such great support from Robert, my agent, and also the publishers. And it's a very old school way of doing it, mm. that you allow the development of the writer. And um, I, think it's, I think it's not done enough. Mm. And I think things are rushed. And I think it's very difficult to, to rush the creative process. And I think maybe a little bit more understanding. I know it's a business, <laughs> but... You know, I think it's, um, I just think it's so valuable. You get so much out of it. You do, we do. It is an incredible book, I have to say, A Year of Marvelous Ways. A huge thank you to Sarah Winman for launching it here tonight. <laughs> to Tracy Thorne for also launching our books. And to the amazing Catherine Robbie, all of you, and the Mondial Hotel. Thank you very much.